Hello and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that comes up. And today we have another brilliant guest, the executive director of ADF International, specializing in free speech. His book is called Censored. It's Paul Coleman. Thanks so much for doing the show, Paul. Thanks so much for having me on. And we were going to start with this massive case that is back again, the case of Paivi Razanem, who is the Finnish politician who was accused of hate speech for quoting the Bible, if that's correct. And that was back in 2019. But the case is back again now. And, it's, and as we record, it's, she's going to be back in court next week. So I was just wondering, Paul, if you could summarize the case, give us an update and explain your involvement in it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so Paivi Razanen is a Finnish member of parliament, one of the most long-standing members of the Finnish parliament. She's a former government minister and served in all sorts of roles over the past 25 to 30 years now. Um, in 2019, the member of uh, the church that she is a part of became the uh, an official sponsor of Helsinki's Pride event. Um, and as a member of that church, she questioned that decision. And so she went up to her bedroom, found her Bible, took a picture of some Bible verses, and then sent a tweet, essentially saying, how does the, the teaching of the Bible, as Paivi understands it, align with this decision of her church? So she did that, didn't really think much more about it. Uh, and then she found out that the police were investigating this for a potential hate speech um, offence. And then in the process of investigating this, the police then opened numerous other uh, number of other charges against her, including um, a booklet that she wrote in 2004 for her church on the Christian view of marriage and human sexuality, uh, as well as a, a live radio debate that she participated in that was sort of discussing all these things. And they took a couple of minutes out of context and made that into a charge as well. And so there were three criminal charges against Paivi and then one against a bishop of the Lutheran Church who published this booklet way back in 2004. Uh, the investigation, police investigation, went on a couple of years. They were interrogated for hours at the police station. Paivi was taking her Bible with her uh, and being asked what various different passages meant. Uh, eventually, the general prosecutor of Finland decided to uh, bring the prosecution, and it was heard last year in the Helsinki District Court, lasted two days. The District Court acquitted Paivi and the bishop of all uh, offences. Um, and according to Finnish law, the prosecutor is allowed to appeal that decision, not on a narrow point of law, but essentially retry the whole case, uh, which is what is happening next week in Helsinki at the Court of Appeal. So the prosecutor had a round one last year, and now gets to go again for round two next week. Yeah, that seems crazy. I mean, I believe it started in yeah, it started in June 2019. So it's incredible that it's still going on. And yeah, she was a, she was a, sort of objecting to her church's involvement in Pride 2019. And it, I think she's part of the Lutheran Church. Is that right? Correct. And her husband is a pastor in the church as well. Okay. And she basically quoted from Romans. This quote, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And it goes on a bit, but it was, it was a quote from Romans. So it, you, you're faced with this question. Is it, is it illegal to quote the Bible? And is therefore the Bible illegal? Do we need to ban the Bible? Now, is it the, right. is it the text itself or is it the context? Is it that she is approving of it? Could you quote it to mock it? it? Does it become a kind of thought crime? What's your take on that? Yeah, so the prosecutor has said, look, it's no problem owning a Bible. It's no problem quoting the Bible as, for example, a historical text. And in fact, in an opinion piece that the prosecutor wrote a couple of years ago, she actually said, for example, one could own and quote Mein Kampf. And so in doing that, actually equated in that sense the Bible to Mein Kampf as if these were somehow um, equivalents. Um, but the prosecutor said, but just because you can own it or quote it, it doesn't mean to say essentially that you can um, act on it or, or in that sense um, hold to these beliefs or express these beliefs. And the prosecutor has tried throughout to say that this case is nothing to do with Christianity. It's nothing to do with uh, the Bible or Christian teaching. This is all about um, hate and hate speech and what have you. However, in the prosecutor's arguments, um, the prosecutor talks constantly about God 
and sin and the concept of it and the teaching of the Bible. I mean, I have the prosecutor's arguments in front of me and it's just there are just countless references to God, sin, the Bible, etc. So there's, there's no question. It's not hyperbole to say that the trial is about orthodox Christian teaching, which, of course, many would say is offensive. Many would say they, they disagree with it. Um, but there's one thing to say, I don't like this teaching, I disagree with it, I don't like, I, you know, what Christians believe. To say, uh, and then another thing to say, well, it should be criminally prosecuted, that potentially people should suffer jail time for believing and saying these things. Yeah, I mean, we've had preachers arrested in the UK, street preachers and things. I mean, do you think we're close to just Christianity just being illegal in itself? I think that if you follow the line of argumentation of the prosecutor, then historical orthodox Christian teaching on the issue of marriage and, and sexual morality uh, could become potentially a yeah, criminal offence to, to espouse those views. I mean, that's the logical conclusion to the argumentation. Yeah, because at the moment they're not trying to go around banning Bibles, and yet if you quote from the Bible in a certain context, when you're going up against one of their sacred beliefs, which in this case is that Pride Month, you know, it's all mm -hmm. their sacred rituals perhaps, then then it becomes basically illegal. I mean, only in Finland at the moment, though it's not very different over here, it doesn't seem that different in the UK. Or Actually, that's an interesting question. Do you think, how far do you think the UK is behind Finland in this? So, as you mentioned, the UK has a quite rich tradition over the last 10, 15 years of arresting street preachers. I mean, it seems to me that not a month or two goes by that we don't read a story of, of the police uh, heavy-handedly dragging away a street preacher for, for preaching from the Bible. So I think that the UK and other Western nations are not far removed from what we're witnessing here in Finland. I mean, I've been working on this issue for the past 15 years or so, and I would say that the prosecution of Paivi Rasnan is the most extreme example that I have come across to date, uh, but it's not massively different from the sort of other things that we're seeing in other countries. It's just further along in the process. But the, the essentially, the idea is that this teaching of, of Christianity is so offensive um, that it has to be banned and the people who espouse these views have to be punished. And I, I don't think it will be long until we start seeing that argumentation crop up in other Western nations. Why do you think it was this one particularly that was taken this far? You say it's the, one of the most, or the most extreme case. I mean, because she was a, a parliamentarian, former minister of the interior, sort of a respected person. You know, why was it this? Why did they particularly mm. focus on Pivey? So one of the particular features of how um, hate speech laws are used across Europe is that they are applied arbitrarily. I mean, if you think of just the sheer amount of speech that is generated each day across hundreds of millions of, of citizens that live within Europe, think of every tweet that is sent, every YouTube video that's uploaded, every TikTok video, um, there's just way too much to police. And so what we see a very clear pattern is a few people are selected. It's almost like a show trial. They're selected. Um, these um, cases are brought forward. They're dragged through the courts. It takes years. It costs a fortune. And it's a very cost efficient way for the state to scare others into silence. Because, of course, you then have hundreds of thousands or millions of people looking on thinking, I don't want to spend the next four years defending myself in, in a criminal court. So I better just say nothing because I don't, I don't want that happening to me. So my opinion is it's a very clear tactic. People on a platform who have a platform are selected. The speech is targeted. It's arbitrarily enforced, these laws, um, in order to scare everyone else into silence. Yeah. As you say, it would be logistically impossible. I remember when Lawrence Fox, well, actually... His friend was arrested because he he shared. Lawrence Fox had put up that that meme of this oh, yeah. the pride flag rearranged as a swastika, and someone else had reposted it. They got a visit from the police, and they said to them, "Well, the Daily Mail's printed, reprinted this as well. You're gonna ha wouldn't you have to arrest all the Daily Mail editorial staff?" And they said, "Oh, we we wouldn't have the resources." Right. <laughs> Their answer wasn't that's completely absurd or like to laugh it off. They literally would if they could. Yeah, yeah, but crazy? the resource the resource um point is, is also a good one because 
Think of the amount of state resources that go into these prosecutions. And in the UK and across the rest of the West, we all have a challenge of law enforcement. Um, we see all sorts of stories of, of crimes that are going uh, not investigated by, by the police, not being brought forward and what have you. And then you have a case like this that has clogged up the police resources and the prosecution for four years. Um, in the meantime, think of all the other things that they're not able to spend their resources on and not able to do. Mm, yeah, the one people tend to cite in London is stabbings. Everyone's getting stabbed, but we're investigating your tweet. Yeah, That's absolutely. Fun. And there's this other aspect that the this phrase, the, the process is the punishment. It's now so time consuming. As you said, this has been going on for years. It's incredibly costly. Every time I see one of these cases, I just interviewed Al McGaddo on Free Speech Nation on GB News. She got sacked from the Open University for questioning gender ideology. Now she's mm. in this expensive legal case. She's got a crowdfunder. But you look at the cost involved, or James S's, who we've also had on this show, another lengthy legal battle. And they've raised huge amounts on their crowdfunder, but it's all just going to go to their legal costs and more. It seems to be so right. expensive now as well. Well, and, and in Finland, this might be true in other European countries, it's even worse than that, because similarly with, with Pavi's case, money is being raised in order to support her, her legal defense. The, the state has unlimited resources, private individuals do not. And now uh, there was a, an article that came out in Finland a couple of weeks ago that said, well, if, if people are chipping in here to help support her legal costs, that could be considered gifts under Finnish law for which there is a tax. So it might, so not only do you have four years being dragged through the courts, unlimited state resources thrown at you, you then have people saying, hey, I'm going to chip in a bit and, and help you out. And then they're turning around and saying, well, if you do, that'll, you'll have to pay tax on that. Wow. Um, it's just incredible. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely shocking. So yeah, that's what I don't understand though, is you said that they, these these laws are sort of arbitrary. I mean, it says on the website, despite having no basis in international law, all European member states have vague and subjective hate speech laws, so they can be weaponized against anyone. And they rely on terms like insult, belittle, and offend. And this is a crucial thing as well, that they, it's all about the, in the eye of the beholder, if the person feels offended, then, then that's, that's hate speech, which is, that's impossible to police because anyone can feel any way. Right, exactly. And so the, one of the common features of these hate speech laws is how subjective and, and vaguely worded they are, um, and really turning it to what the person's perception is rather than any sort of objective criteria. And in a sense, there can't really be objective criteria for hate speech because hate is, is an impossible legal term to define. Yes. I mean, if we think we're talking about the criminal law here, and we need very precise terminology to understand whether something is lawful or unlawful. Um, someone's liberty is at stake by how we define these things. And if you look at how they define hate speech, firstly, there is no um, universal definition uh, as a fact. And then when anybody tries to um, define hate speech, they just do, th do so with circular argumentation. So hate speech is hateful speech or hate speech is, and then just insert some synonyms. Hate speech is insulting, offensive, whatever, but that doesn't define it. It just pushes the definition one step further, which is okay. Well, what's insulting? What's offensive? Um, and so that again, the, the subjectivity is not a flaw in hate speech laws. It's a design feature. Um, it, they are deliberately subjective in order to be used and wielded as, as the state wishes. It's yeah, not an accident. Yeah, we see a very similar circular argument. What is a woman? Well, it's anyone who identifies as a woman and feels like one. Okay, well, what's that? And it, that goes round and round. Yeah, and it's interesting. Hate, I mean, yeah, it's a metaphysical concept to try and put it into law is very difficult. And you have organizations like Stop Funding Hate that targeted GB News before, they, before we were even launched. And it's now become another one of those words you just instinctively don't trust like yeah. re-educate myself or learn or listen they've got so many words now they've co-opted and hate is another now you hear it you hear stop funding hate you think oh they're probably activists who i shouldn't trust yeah. absolutely so ursula von der Leyen the uh, head of the european commission is trying to introduce um hate speech as an eu crime so that that means that it can be enforced in any different jurisdiction. Um, so the, the only EU crimes that exist are for things like human trafficking, terrorism, things that transcend borders, and the EU wants to include hate speech in this very small list. And so 
Um, the, Com the European Commission wrote to the European Parliament to introduce this proposal. And I'm not kidding, the way that it was introduced, the first three words to introduce this proposal from Ursula von der Leyen was, hate is hate. Uh, and that, that uh, as if, that, you know, so we had love is love, yeah. is that okay? But now we have hate is hate, as if that in any way explains a far-reaching uh, change to the legal structure of Europe. Well, well, I suppose hate is hate, so... Yeah, I uh, suppose it was inevitable, wasn't it? Flows. That's so funny in a very bleak way. The fact that Pied as well was, was rebelling against Pride, whose motto is love is love. So I suppose naturally her rebellion against it must be hate is hate. True. There's a certain <laughs> logic to it. <laughs> God, it's so, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's just so disturbing. I mean, and also another weird detail was that Pivey is being prosecuted for ethnic agitation, which sounds sort of weird in European. I'm not sure anyone in England would know what that is, under the section of war crimes and crimes mm. against humanity. So that's like the smoking gun in, in the criminal provision that really gets to the heart of where all these hate speech laws came from. And so this this concept of war crimes and crimes against humanity, um, I'm going to give you a longer answer than you're expecting. OK, so uh, end of Second World War, uh, everyone just saw what happened in, in Nazi Germany. It was lawful within the German legal code that Hitler instituted. And yet they still wanted to prosecute Nazis and others for crimes that had been committed. So they had to point to something beyond the domestic law of the nation itself. Um, and that's where we get the modern day human rights framework from. These were introduced to sort of provide um, certain limitations on the use of state power. Um, and so it began with things like you know, war crimes, crimes against humanity, things that were so egregious that they went beyond the legal structure of any given country. Okay, so that is the genesis for modern day hate speech laws because it was then within this idea of um, crimes against humanity and genocide, you then had incitement to genocide and incitement to war crimes. And then the one more step to that was, well, let, we can't just stop there because uh, let's go one step further, and we had incitement to hatred, an advocacy of hatred, an advocacy of war. And so that, that's where it finds its place in the international legal order. And then once that was set, all of the different European countries started changing their criminal laws to bring this into their, their criminal codes. And then one, when they did that, they then expanded and expanded and expanded again over time, so that it, it went from essentially what began in the 50s and 60s as trying to prevent incitement of advocacy of hatred that ultimately might lead to a genocide or a war or something to uh, over time tweeting a picture of some bible verses and its placement in the Finnish criminal code uh, sort of shows that history and shows that connection and ethnic agitation is because all of these laws began in terms of racist speech um, and then once they said, well, it shouldn't just be racist speech, but also uh, sexist or religious hatred. And then more recently, hatred on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity. Wow. So was it a overreaction to Hitler and the Second World War going too far now the other way with sort of authoritarian, you could call it authoritarian leftism, whatever you want to call it. Or was it, because I've heard you talk about that before, and you said that a communist Eastern voting bloc won key votes in that process you're talking about these people got these bodies got together they, mm -hmm. to try and uh, uh, alleviate the problems or, or let not reproduce the problems of the second world war but it ended mm -hmm. up that certain countries who are not western or liberal had a large say as well is, is that is that what happened exactly yeah so essentially you had a western bloc and a, and a communist soviet bloc that thrashed out the international human rights order that we have today. Um, they were the two main voting, voting blocks of the era. That's the way the world was divided up. And so the fingerprints of both sides are throughout all of these documents. Um, so a lot of the non-discrimination language that we have traces its way back to the Soviet influence. But the same is true in terms of hate speech laws, because the West was very clear that um, it was, it was fine to penalise incitement to violence, but not incitement to hatred. And so the West sort of red line was incitement to violence, which as a lawyer, that's a legal um, 
definition that we can work with, that we can understand, that we can define, that we can know if we're doing it or not. But yeah, on this on this occasion, the Soviet bloc went out in broadening that to incitement to hatred. And so I think it's a true statement to say that the modern day hate speech laws that we all have on our statute books um, are traced back to a Soviet or communist influence in the middle of the last century. And that the countries that we all live in today in the West um, opposed all of that in the middle of the last century and now have adopted all of it without even knowing the roots of it. So why the change? Why have they now adopted it where they did oppose it? I think it, it, it essentially maps and tracks a deterioration of, of the appreciation for free speech in the West that we see in lots of different contexts. I think that we all recognize that um, the value in freedom of speech that we, we place on it has been going downhill for all of our lifetimes. And that's why we've got all these phrases now like cancel culture, trying to explain what's happening. And so the, the spread of hate speech laws, the expansion of them is just part of that process that the West is going through where it is devaluing um, freedom of expression. And, and this is taking place at the university level, at the legal level, at the cultural level, tech platforms, you know, every, every aspect of life. Yeah. So, so ultimately, if you had to answer the question where wokeness comes from or whatever you want to call it, this new ideology, would you say law? Because some people say it comes from French postmodernist thought. Some people say it comes from, in this country, the Equalities Act. Eric Kaufman was on this show a couple of weeks ago. He said it comes from anti-racism legislation and activism in the united states uh so where would you where would, would you say it comes from these laws and then as other factors accumulating over time yeah i think that the law is probably mostly downstream in this in this occasion of course there's always the question does law shape culture or does culture shape the laws and i think the answer is both in in different ways but i think that a lot of the the philosophy, the legal philosophy that we have accepted and promoted in, in the West over the last century, certainly the last half century, has now found its roots in the legal um, structures that we have. Uh, and that includes some of the non-discrimination legislation, it includes uh, various other pieces of legislation that on their face sound good and we would support, but as you said earlier, uh, there's a, such a distortion of language that a lot of these concepts don't mean what they say. And so I would say, um, yeah, a lot of the, 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 the critical theory that we would call wokeism today, I think, through this relativistic philosophy that's been developing over the last half century that then finds expression in the, the legal provisions of our different nations. Okay. And would you say the COVID era accelerated this or just revealed what was already there and the problems we were already lying below the surface in our relationship to the state and our relationship to freedom and, and civil liberties and so on? I think both. I think that it, it, it revealed a lot, but I think it served as a catalyst as well. It accelerated a lot of the trends. It accelerated the use of state power. Uh, it accelerated the state's desire to limit the freedoms of citizens. It accelerated the use of um, corporate power um, and the the um, accelerating the way in which um, the, the merging really of a lot of um, corporate power and state power. So I think that it certainly acted as an accelerator, a catalyst, but it also revealed what was what was already happening. Little left field question that just occurred to me as well. Um, one term I keep hearing a lot is anarcho-tyranny, which basically means that the criminals are allowed to go free while at the same time the innocent are punished. And we see it all the time with things like Just Stop Oil. They get to walk down the middle of the road really slowly, stop people getting to work, getting to hospital. Then someone gets frustrated, tries to move them out of the way. That guy gets tackled by the police. Have you noticed this theme? And, and, and legally, would you have any take on that? Yeah, the legal, my legal sort of expression for it would be a crumbling of the rule of law, essentially. Um, and that's one of my biggest concerns as a lawyer, outside of even the specifics of the various cases that we're involved in. And the, what you just described there is a failure 
of of the legal order failure. Um, and I would say, we'll point to multiple examples of worrying trends where, and, and even this case, the, the Pajirasanen case, um, I would say that a four-year prosecution and that some of the argumentation that is being deployed, that even if she is ultimately acquitted again and again, she's already been acquitted once, maybe she'll be acquitted at the Court of Appeal and maybe the Supreme Court, the, the weaponization of uh, the prosecution service in this case, the weaponization of the police, I think also shows just a breakdown of our legal system, breakdown of rule of law. And I think we're seeing that really a, a, across the Western world. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to ask you why you're here, because I know ADF have been taking a keen interest in these buffer zones in the UK. So, and we just did an article actually last night, I was on Headliners, which is a show on GB News, and there was an article in the Times about how the buffer zone laws are going to be delayed coming into effect. And the Times seemed to be very much against this, was my take from their article. They were, they were oh, it's terrible, these buffer zone laws are going to be delayed. Now, if anyone listening doesn't know, these buffer zones are about people protesting in uh, near abortion centers. And so one of the ways they do it is by praying in their heads. And police officers have come up to people and said, are you praying? And they say, well, I might be. And, and so they get arrested then for praying in their heads. And it's very hard, Paul, to get this, get people to realize how serious this is and how bad it is because they're so anti the pro-life movement in the UK. So what is your take on, on buffer zones and why is there such antagonism to it, in, to the sort of pro-life position in the UK? And I don't know, how do you hope to tackle that? Yeah, well, a few things. So uh, most people would say they're not protesting, um, that it's not, it's uh, now they would argue for the freedom to protest, but what they would say they're doing is um, praying and offering support to women in a vulnerable position. And so um, the way that this has been communicated by some of the uh, abortion providers is this idea that there's essentially picket lines forming with all sorts of harassment and and what have you. And that's just not the case. it's not the case, and we already. And if it was, there are already laws in place to address that sort of thing. For example, there is laws against harassment in the UK, which could be used and aren't because it's not really taking place. So what you typically have, and you can see this, if, for example, if people go to one of the campaign groups back off Scotland, which is one of the campaign groups for these zones, and they they show pictures of some of the egregious things that are taking place, and essentially. On the other side of the street, a long way away from, for example, one of these places, you maybe find a half dozen elderly people praying or holding a sign saying we can help. And, and this is what's considered to be to be so terrible. And so I think there's been there's really been a huge misrepresentation of what's actually happening on the ground um, with with these. And as you said, some of the cases that we're involved in involve people who are standing on a public street on a pavement, um, silently praying. And that's the sort of thing that is leading to police coming along and asking questions. What are you praying about was one of the questions that was asked, as if that is ever an appropriate question for the police to ask someone's praying in their own head. So, I think that it, it's become a big issue because certain vested interests have made out that there's a problem that needs to be solved that I don't think exists in, in reality and in fact. Um, and the public in part support this because they've been told that something's happening that's really, that's really not happening and they're getting their information from these campaigners that support these laws. Um, and and it's not what's happening on the ground. I, I tell you one example, true story of how these sorts of things do happen, of a lady who was pregnant and um, her boyfriend um, told her that she needed to get an abortion, otherwise they would break up. Um, and it was the first time she was pregnant. She was scared, didn't know what to do, and made an appointment to go and get an abortion, even though she didn't want to. Another lady um, said to her en route, hey, if you need any help, we can help. And the woman said, you can't help me. And the other lady said, yes, we can. We can support you and what have you. And as a result of that help, she decided to keep her baby. And then 
uh, now this this is a, a young child, uh, and now she goes out offering other women offers of support in the same way that she received it. Wow. So that's what I would consider to be uh, a perfectly healthy thing to be taking place in a free and democratic country, and that is the sort of thing that they're now seeking to criminalize and seeking to prevent from happening, which I think is a tragedy. Well, I agree, but um, but how do I how do we convince people of that? Because you know, even people who who claim they're pro free speech or seem to be vaguely on our on sort of agree with me because they're following me on Twitter, and yet they when it comes to this issue. Because, like I say, people are so rapidly on the so-called pro-choice side, and I think we're about to, I think even abortion up to 40 weeks is about to be proposed in the UK, as I understand it, but let's see. But, but um, when it comes to this buffer zone issue, they, they say, well, like, like, so it comes from this misapprehension that they're harassing women. So a normal nice person says, well, they're harassing women who are in a, in a very vulnerable moment. Of course, that's bad. And they believe that, that, that essential premise. And so, of course, they want to stop it. Right. And then I'll say, but we already have laws in place to address that. Right. Right. So what new law is being introduced that we don't already have? Yeah, and that's where it gets into, I don't even, they say, well, she was in the buffer zone, or whatever we want to call it. And I say, yeah, but that's just a law that was introduced five seconds ago that I don't believe in. And, and that, you know, this idea you can't be in a certain space thinking a prayer in your head. People can't see how Orwellian that is. Some people can see it, but some people are sort of distracted by the hatred of the, you know, this pro-life side that they can't see that that's an issue they would normally support that it's actually yeah. a free speech issue as well. It is, and I think that on the free speech issue, it just tracks a general trend, which is that we are losing, as a culture, as a society, a sense of value in free speech. Um, and it's sort of a use it or lose it thing, because if we, if we don't have that value, if we don't support it, even for the speech with which we disagree, um, well, we know the lesson of history, which is that those in power will seek to take our rights away from us. I mean, this, I mean, that's not sort of an extreme thing to say. That is just a clear, a clear lesson. Right. Um, and so I think one, I mean, one of the key trends that we see around the world now on, on a number of different issues, essentially, is that there is there's a, increasingly there's a right way to view the world and, and a wrong way. Um, right way to view, you know, name it, COVID restrictions, climate change, um, all these issues that we're talking about, and there's a wrong way. And if you're wrong, um, then your freedom of speech needs to be taken away, uh, and you need to be punished. Um, and that's essentially the overarching theme that we see across a whole range of different issues. Um, and, and it will only continue to accelerate unless we place a proper value on freedom of speech. Yeah, that's very true. I can tell there's always a right way and a wrong way because I'm always on the wrong side, almost well, without fail. Yeah. It's incredible. It's like, it's like a perfect compass. Um, and have you noticed as well, have you had a problem with, well, no, of course you've noticed, but have you had an issue where ADF as an organization is thought to be a kind of American troublemaking, pro-life evangelical organization causing trouble in the UK? Have you had an issue with that? Yeah, I mean... Our international team, there's about a hundred of us, and we're from goodness knows how many different nationalities, speaking how many different languages in offices all over the world. So again, there's just a common theme of um, using ad hominem attacks to sort of, instead of getting to the issue itself, to try and name call and uh, as, a, as a means of shutting down debate. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll be, we'll be named called all sorts of different things, which we just ignore and try and keep to the issues that we're debating. But the, the idea that we are some, you know, outside influence is, is a nonsense. Our, our UK team is staffed by Brits. I'm a Brit. I lead the team. And you can look in any different direction and see uh, how much variety and, and diversity we have on the team. Yeah, and it always, yeah, caricatured as these evil people. And then, you know, I meet people like you, you seem very nice. Lois McClatchy Miller, she's been on the podcast, one of the nicest people you can meet. So it's just, it's a, it's a ridiculous caricature. But, okay, I didn't want to just ask about that. But another topic I just wanted to ask you about, kind of, maybe I'm going all over the map here, but this is um, it's about hate speech around the world because obviously you have an international view of this. You're ADF International and, and you know about law around the world. And there's some interesting examples where in Mexico... We had uh, two public figures were convicted of gender-based political violence because they couldn't affirm that a trans-identifying politician was a, a woman. In Nigeria, a Sufi Muslim 
musician actually was placed on death row for sharing an allegedly blasphemous WhatsApp message. And then um, in Pakistan, there was a thing where apparently the ADF were involved in where there was a, a Christian couple who were facing death, but who were acquitted on false charge of blasphemy. So this idea of, of blasphemy law, so there's a couple of things here. There's, mm. there's the, the parallel between whether our hate speech laws are our kind of secular version of blasphemy laws. Maybe we'll start with that. And then I wanted to ask you another question about blasphemy laws. But yeah, what's your take on that? I think there's, there's no question in my mind that it is exactly as you put it, that our modern day hate speech laws are a secular um, equivalent or replacement of blasphemy laws. I mean, we see this, for example, right now in the some of the Nordic countries. You've been following the story of people um, burning the Koran. And a lot of these Nordic countries abolish their blasphemy laws because they consider them archaic and the thing of the past. We're moving on from that. So then they, a number of people started burning Korans, and then the question's been raised, what are we going to do about this because we don't want it? And now they're starting to launch prosecutions under the country's hate speech laws um, because this is a violent, this is a, an act of hate speech. So you can see that in, where a country, a Western country, has got rid of its blasphemy law, it has essentially asserted a hate speech law in its place and is using it in that exact way. So I, I think that... For me, that's sort of case closed on, on the argument. But, I mean, we even see the parallels between them. So if you think of a, of a classic blasphemy law in a, in a country like Pakistan, it, it essentially sets up this idea that there is some speech that is, is so offensive to the listener um, that the speaker of it needs to be punished. And that's exactly what a hate speech law is, that the, the speaker is saying something so offensive that the, uh, the, the speech needs to be banned and the speaker needs to be punished. Now, the significant difference between, for example, Pakistan, some of the secular equivalents, is not so much the philosophy or the ideology behind that thinking. It's just how extreme the punishment is. And so no one denies that it's far more extreme in other countries, people on death row. That's obviously more extreme than a heavy fine or a, a short prison sentence. But the philosophy and the ideology behind it is basically the same. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. And do you think there's an interesting parallel there with burning the flag? Because it's kind of understood in countries like America and here, but it's sort of, for some reason, it's more of an iconic thing in America that, that someone will burn the United States flag and they'll say, okay, that's actually an American thing to do. We love our country, but we love the fact that you can burn the flag. Whereas with the Quran and these things, it's as if we've been blindsided. Like we learned this from, we know this about our own national flag. And that's something we've learned from history, that it's better to let people do that. But now we've kind of forgotten that in this new context, this new multicultural context. And we say, oh, we can't offend Muslims, so you can't burn the Quran. But it's actually the same principle. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the, the mistake that's made is the idea that these sorts of actions or certain speech, um, we should allow them because they're, they're not causing any harm and therefore they should be allowed. But I, I think the better argument is to say, no, we, we recognize that this, this is offensive and there is a, there's a real harm that's caused in, in terms of the, the viewer, the listener, what have you, two things that they hear. Let's not pretend that it doesn't exist or just tell them to be tough or whatever. I think that it would be wrong to do that. We can, say, we can admit that there are things that we hear or see that offend us or insult us and that in some way cause some measure of harm, but the, we fear the censorship more. And, and so we, we can't just ban these things because they're offensive or insulting, because in doing so, we're causing more harm than good, because the censorship ultimately is more harmful than the speech. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it's always edge cases. It's always things that are offensive. That's the whole point. I mean, you and me are probably not going to go out and burn a Koran, but at the same time, is banning it more dangerous? And it does seem to be that it is. But here's a controversial question, just from my own little layman thoughts. So with a... In, in, in England, since the decline of Christianity, I would say the country's got worse. But we don't have things like blasphemy laws. And in 1949, Lord Denning had this interesting thing to say. He said the reason for this law, blasphemy laws, was because it was thought that a denial of Christianity was liable to shake the fabric of society, which was itself founded upon Christian religion. There is no such danger to society now, and the offense of blasphemy is a dead letter. 
So what I look at when I see something like this, even though I'm pro-free speech, part of me goes, actually, would we have a better country in England if we were a Christian country with blasphemy laws where we just said, we're a Christian country, deal with it, much in the way that perhaps Saudi Arabia would with Islam? Yeah. Well, that that is a conversation for another day. I think it would be an entire podcast episode in its own in terms okay. of how, how all of these apply. But I, I think that the... Myself and others would argue that e even if we were sympathetic to the idea from one's own personal vantage point, the criminal law still isn't the right way to achieve those ends. Um, and so I think it's it's not wrong to move away from it. Um, but there is a broader point in terms of well, what is the state of our civil discourse? What is the state of our country? And, and, and what is ultimately... Um, uniting the country if it's not christianity which it had been for a very long time then then what is it now yes and it, what it seems to be is this new ideology call it whatever you want call it wokeness but something's going to replace christianity and it has and of course it's much much worse so um speaking of of, of the of the country i know you have to go reasonably soon but you've been living in vienna and you've been probably traveled quite a lot from your vantage point what do you think about britain because i often ask on this podcast whether britain's finished and um, I just wonder what your obviously you're English, but then you've been in Vienna. What's mm -hmm. your perspective mm -hmm. on how England or Britain is doing? Um, yeah, so I've been out of the UK now for over a decade, and so I suppose I do have like that outsider perspective looking in, and probably myself as a Brit would share the view of many others, which are on a general level in any direction you look, there's a sort of deterioration which I witness, which other people witness, which I think is very alarming. Um, deterioration in terms of our political um, space and political leadership. That's not being party political. I'm talking across the board. Uh, deterioration in terms of rule of law, as we talked about earlier. A deterioration in terms of cultural values. And, and from my own perspective, as, as a Christian, in terms of our religious values. And, and very unclear where all of this is going to lead. Um, but it seems to me that the, the fabric of the nation is sort of fraying at the edges um, and and doesn't seem to be slowing down. And so I'm concerned. I'm grieved, in fact. And as I saw at the end of, of last year, our police surrounding this woman, Isabel Vaughan Spruce, and arresting her, searching her on the street and dragging her away, praying silently in her head. It's hard to look at a, a scene like that, which was viewed millions of times, many, many of your viewers will have seen. It's hard to look at a scene like that and not think what is happening to the country. Like this is not the country that, that we used to know. Mm. Yeah. Well, I start to wonder if it was a sort of blip, although England has a long, long tradition of civil liberties, obviously. We're kind of the pioneers of it. But then again, a lot of times I wonder if the 80s and 90s were a sort of blip and we sort of lapsed back into people's sort of knee-jerk authoritarianism. I don't know. I've talked to Andrew Doyle about this on this podcast and free speech. He, he sort of says it's a constant argument. You never win. It, it's actually it's not the norm in the world. It's actually quite hard to explain to people. Where we, when I grew up, it seemed natural, but actually that was an illusion that was part of the time period, I think. And now it seems actually this is more normal that we have to fight for it. What do you think? I think that what's unusual, I've been, I've been thinking about this more broadly recently, what's unusual about the time that we live in, it's true to say that there's always been sort of threats to freedom of speech. And if you look through our history, you can see that. And by the way, as we look to history, the, the censors are always on the wrong side of history. So if we're always accused of being on the wrong side of it today, the lesson of history is those who seek to censor speech were always on the wrong side. Um, but but more broadly, I think what distinguishes this moment from others in the past is the broad support for censorship outside of a sort of an authoritarian top down situation, which is typically the case. And normally you have a ruler with significant power. And of course, a ruler with significant power loves to be able to silence their opponents. That's what many would like to do if they could. Um, and then you would have people who are who are campaigning for their freedom. What we have today is huge array of, of non-profits and charities and other groups, um, Stop Funding Hate, you mentioned, there's a whole array of them, as well as the universities and academia 
and, and various other civil society level groups who are also calling for and clamoring for censorship and the idea that free speech is harmful and dangerous. I think historically that's unusual for the people themselves to be saying we need to restrict our freedoms. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, self-censorship. I wonder if that comes partly from technology. This is one of my theories that Twitter, now X, allows things, obviously allows communication to be very fast, but it also has made the world smaller. One theory I have about humor, because I spent 11 years as a stand-up comedian, is that the best humor is your mates at school because it's the highest level of in-jokes and constant threads lasting for years, and it's the funniest you can possibly be, and you can be offensive as you want. Then, then as it goes out and out, it gets harder to be funny. You, you know, on a, when you're doing stand-up around the country, it has to be broad enough that everyone can laugh. Then it becomes global to where we used to understand that England was a country that had a rich sense of humor and, and things. Now we're constantly banning comedians or, you know, can't, Graham Linehan was just canceled from Edinburgh Festival. That was for his trans views. But there's this sort of trend. To, loads of people have been in trouble. Jimmy Carr, John Cleese. It goes on and on. And I believe it's because we've opened up. The, we're, we're, it's a global world now. So the more, mm. well, the more multiculturalism increases in the country and the more you can communicate with different cultures via the internet, the less... The, the more sensitive you have to be. And that's with, with regards to humor. But is that also in regards to everything? Are we just, everyone's ultra sensitive. Everyone, different cultures are clashing on the internet and in the world. And we just have to be ultra sensitive all the time. Is that part of it? It might be. And it would be depressing if we end up with this sort of lowest common denominator right. of speech, you know, right. where it's the blandest form of speech that is accessible to everyone. Um, that's where I think we're going. But it has accelerated, hasn't it, with Twitter? Even COVID was a sort of, Partly an online phenomenon, people remarked that you, this wouldn't have been able to spread in the 90s, not the virus, but the the uh, reaction to the virus, because people just wouldn't be able to, they'd be like, wouldn't know anyone that had yeah. it or whatever. I think that's true, but I would also caution there's always throughout history people who have pointed to the particular moment that has led to the reasons for, for doing certain things. So Herbert Marcuse, for example, no, known as like the father of the new left, he wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance, which is this idea that uh, the elite in power have a duty to essentially censor and is one of the main thinkers behind a lot of the censorship movement. And he frames a lot of his argumentation in that through the modern means of technology and how things are spreading so fast now that we have to have extra measures in place to sort of put the brakes on and slow this down. And he was writing in the middle of the last century. I think the same would probably be true of Gutenberg and, and the printing press and at various other points throughout history. So I, I do agree with you, but I also think we have to be careful not to imagine that there's just some new technology that is, is a reason for the way that people are acting because that argument has always been made. I see. Well, certainly people have always acted this way. We talked to Andrew Doyle about the Salem witch trials, although it was very mm. localized because they didn't have Twitter, but they certainly had the same behavior, which is the, the witch trial type mentality. And it's interesting. It was just a thought that occurred to me about technology. But um, one question I do like to ask is, we've sort of acknowledged all the problems, but how do we, how do we overcome them? And I sometimes phrase it as, how do we win the culture war? Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a huge question. And <laughs> I mean, I've hinted at it in parts during this, in the sense that um, we won't get very far if we don't reclaim a culture of free speech, because out of that comes so many other ideas that we need for, for all of the different things. And so for me as a lawyer working on this, we have to hold ground essentially and make sure that we're not censored out of existence so that a free marketplace of ideas can be maintained with the belief that if you have a free marketplace of ideas and if you have freedom of speech in a, in a true and a real sense, uh, then ultimately over a long enough time frame, this will correct and um, that truth and goodness will out. I think that that's the, the hope that I have and I, the confidence I have. But in order to get there, we need to hold the line and make, make sure that we still have the freedom for those points to be made and to be won out. Yeah, and I'm slightly concerned about the younger generation who don't seem as concerned about free speech mm -hmm. when polled, and I'm concerned about the Labour government in this country who also will probably bring in more hate speech laws of anything. We were doing an article about that last night with regards to LGBT hate speech laws. So are you concerned in the future that people are actually going to go more authoritarian? 
I think things are trending in a, in a largely negative direction. That's not because I'm a negative person. I'm like a genuine optimist, uh, like on a, you know, on a general level. But I think there's a difference between being realist and a pessimist. And I think it's realistic to say things have been trending negatively, but it's not inevitable. And one of the great lessons of history is that the idea that the future is inevitable is, is clearly wrong. And one thing I always say in this question about what can we do and what's happening, isn't everything getting worse, is imagine what it would have been like in in East Berlin in 1989, when nobody said, nobody predicted the war would fall, nobody believed that communism would end, and then just a few trigger things happened and the whole thing came crashing down. There was no talking head on TV that predicted it or said it would happen. So we don't know what moment we're at in history. We won't know until we look back. But there's plenty of moments we can look back on in history and see when things changed very fast. Yeah, and I think the positives are that this, whatever you want to call it, this movement is ribbon with inherent contradictions, plus the vast majority of people hate it. So I think it can end <laughs> like the Berlin Wall. I think we saw, I said Nicola Sturgeon had a Berlin Wall moment. Maybe it was to do with her financial dealings. I, but at the time, it looked like it was to do with her stance on things like the, uh, you know, men in women's prisons, and she just suddenly collapsed. So mm -hmm. I, I think it could happen in the way that you say. All right, I know you've got to go. Um, you're, so you've got the case coming up next week. And yeah. um, is there anything further to say about that? I mean, what's your hope for the case? I mean, you have said it's not good enough, actually, that to be let off such cases. The problem is they shouldn't even be brought in the first place. Yeah, that's right. So we need the acquittal. We need to win again. But if we do, I won't be calling it a free speech victory. I'll be calling it a victory, a legal victory. We have to win. Uh, but the victory comes when these things don't happen because there's nothing that stops the fact this has taken four years and counting of this person's life, a busy member of parliament, a mother, a grandmother who's been consumed or being criminally prosecuted for years. So the acquittal isn't enough. These have to stop. But we have to win first and foremost. People can read more about it on our website, adfinternational.org slash free speech on trial. And through that, you can get all the information to the case and the broader issue. Okay, thanks, Paul. And apart from that, where should they go to find you? Uh, I'm on X. Yeah, I keep on having to remember that's what it's called <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, Paul Coleman, Paul B. Coleman on Twitter, as well as our ADF handles across the board. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks so much for doing the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. That was Paul Coleman. Very interesting episode, I thought. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel and give the video a like. If you're listening on audio, why not give the show a five-star review? It takes a few seconds. And if you want to support the current thing, so to speak, the best way to support the show for now is go to buymeacoffee.com slash nickdixon and you can buy me a digital coffee. And if you like, leave a comment, hopefully a nice one. And we'll see you again next week.